Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is an important part of the scriptures. It holds some of the most memorable accounts in the entire Bible, like the story of creation and the calling of Abraham. But more important than the individual stories within it, this book marks the beginning of God's magnificent plan of redemption for a lost humanity. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. If you want to open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 34, um, we're gonna we're screaming along. We're going really fast. We're gonna do another chapter tonight. <laughs> um, just kind of plunking along here. Someone asked me when we we're gonna finish, and I said, um, "If you if you find out, let me know." <laughs> I have no idea. It's just I'm really trusting the Lord to lead me as I prepare each week to determine how much of a chapter or two or part of a chapter even. So this is the fun part about a historical narrative is that it's not just a historical record. There are biblical principles that we need to lay hold of. If we are reading the Old Testament correctly, we ought to see the message and the testimony of Jesus Christ in each and every book of the Old Testament. And so that is our goal, is to not just say, well, this is what happened long ago. No, this is how it applies to Christ and the ministry of Christ and the gospel in our lives today. Amen? So that's where we're going with it. We're going to review a little bit um, before we jump into 34. So we'll take a few minutes. Um, If you'll pray with me before we get started. Lord, we come to your word not... Hopefully not saying, oh, we've read this before, and there's nothing new to learn. But Lord, rather we would approach your word as humble servants, uh, humble people, knowing our own weaknesses and brokenness, and, and perhaps even see ourselves within the story, the history of Jacob and his family, that it would teach us and we would be yielding to the message that you have for us tonight that you would speak, Lord, and add and subtract from what I prepared so that it would be your voice. So lead and guide us now, we pray, in your word, for your name's sake. Amen. So it has now been 20 years since Jacob, and this is looking back to chapter 33, it's been 20 years since Jacob and Esau have seen each other, since they parted ways, that estrangement that happened, um, not surprising given the life and their history together as a family, the whole favorite thing going on between the two parents, and then uh, talking him out of his birthright, which was an easy thing to do. They're both culpable in that. And then the deception to their father, Isaac, and the failure of both Isaac and Rebecca as parents and all the examples that that was setting for them, and then, you know, fleeing for his life as uh, Esau's, like, murder was on his mind. And uh, really, it was at that point his brother was like, I'm going to have my revenge against the trickster, Jacob. And so they're now in this place, and uh, he's concerned. He's coming to meet Esau there in chapter 33. He's concerned 
that Esau still has revenge in his heart. So in preparation, he does everything that he can. And again, we've said this before, that the, the pattern of Jacob's life is one of hearing from the Lord, trusting the Lord, and then sliding back into fear and doubt. And then hearing from the Lord and trusting the Lord and sliding back into fear and doubt. And we ask the question of ourselves, do we see ourselves in that? I think if we're honest, yes, that we do have seasons of great trust that we hear from the Lord and also times where we are a bit shaky in that. So in that mindset, as he sees Esau at a distance, he's like, I got, or, or he hears that Esau's coming, he says, I got to prepare a gift. And he prepares this really extravagant gift um, there in chapter 33, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 15 or 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And he sends them out in waves with this message. This is a gift from your servant, Jacob. And really, he's seeking to appease what he thinks is Esau's coming anger. So now he sees Esau coming at a distance, and he's now faced with the reality. He sees the 400 people approaching along with him, and the deeper fear is now in his heart, so he divides his family. And this is where it gets sad and weird. He divides his family, and he sets Leah, his most unloved wife, or I, I'm sorry, he starts with his maids, their maids, his his fourth and fifth wife, or, or third and fourth wife, he sets them up first with their children in the front. And then he sets his next favorite, which is Leah, or the least favorite, the two official wives, with her children, and then finally, Rachel and her children. And he does at least take at least a, a manly role in this and that he says, all right, I've set this up, and maybe by some grace of God, if Esau really does come and destroy just wreck everything, at least perhaps Rachel and those children will survive. But he goes to the front of the line. And he, as, as Esau is approaching, he, it says he bows down seven times as he approaches. So again, we still see this kind of favoritism happening. And, and, and imagine with me being a child seeing this. Knowing that if you are, is it Bilhah and, I'm um, forgetting the other, Zilpah, I think it is, the, the two maidservants, if you're their children, your dad, and you're like, we're the cannon fodder, right? We're so loved, we're the first to go. That's a, that is a messed up deal. So he does all this. He gets right, he gets up in front, takes the... He bows down before, and as we mentioned last week, he does take an attitude of humility, but it's this weird mix that's happening. He, he's bowing down before his brother. So there's two parts that are happening in this, that one positive, one negative. The negative view is that Jacob appears to have forgotten the promises of the Lord given to him when he first fled Esau. Uh, the, the covenant promise. And these things have been repeated to him. He, I mean, he wrestles with the Lord. 
And the Lord reaffirms and changes his name. But he seems to, again, he's forgetting these things. And so instead of remembering the covenant promise and the fact that the prophecy that was made before his birth, that him and Esau both would have understood, that the the older would serve the younger, that he would be an authority, he's forgotten all this. So there's this negative aspect that's playing out. But then there's the positive side, that for the first time perhaps in his life, he's eating the humble pie that he should have eaten from a long time ago. Um, and so he is showing this humility, but it's mixed up and all with, all with this dysfunction. In his fear, he abandons his rightful place and fails to display his confidence in the Lord and thus his faith in the Lord, and yet he's also showing some humility. As we talked about, mentioned, or mentioned last week, the large gift that he sends ahead was, in essence, an acknowledgement of his failure and a request for forgiveness. So again, he's doing some good things, but they're not motivated out of a trust of the Lord, and these often don't produce the desired results. At the very least, we do them, when we do those kind of things, we end up with a divided heart that we're not following the Lord's wisdom. But nonetheless, he does them, um, and and this, this idea of forgiveness. And humility really is the key that brings about that reconciliation. As with any of us, uh, humility as a foundation often leads to forgiveness. And as I mentioned last week, the threefold promise of forgiveness, which is really critically important for us. And we spent a little time talking about that. The threefold promise when we forgive someone, when we request forgiveness, number one is I'm saying I will no longer think or dwell on that sin any longer. Number two, I will no longer discuss it with others. And then number three, I will not hold it against that person in the future. This is the threefold promise of forgiveness. And we talked about the fact that, you know, can God, for, does God forget our sin? And the answer is no. Now, He chooses to not recall it against us, is what the Scriptures teach us. He chooses to not dwell on it, to not discuss it, like Satan's like, hey, can you remember when this? And he's like, yeah, I, I'm aware of everything that's gone on in his life, but that's not, that's not on the table for discussion. That's been paid for. That's been dealt with. That's a resolved issue. And God is not going to hold it against us in the future. Amen? What a powerful testimony. And he says, this is how then we ought to live with one another. I mean, there may be sins and injuries that we experience and offenses that we cannot forget but we can choose to not recall them, to drag them back, to pull them forward into the future. When biblical forgiveness is accomplished, it brings forth freedom for both parties. For the offended, it frees them from bitterness. And for the offender, it frees them from guilt and shame. These are key components, and, and it really ought to ask, cause us to ask ourselves, how are we doing in this process? Is this what forgiveness looks like in our lives? 
Are we humble when we approach this? And when forgiveness is offered or when we offer it, are we holding to that threefold promise? Do we experience the freedom that comes from forgiveness? So moving on in there, it says, despite the tearful embrace and restoration between these two men, these estranged brothers, it's a sweet reunion. You're like, oh, it's just, it's, they're going to walk off into the sunset arm in arm, best pals. And, you know, Esau says, you know, come with me, follow me. And Jacob's like, no, no, I got all these kids and all these sheep and everything else. I'll follow you, you know, in my, in, when I can get there, and, but I'll follow along. And you're like, oh, this is, this is so beautiful. They're going to go back to see their dad. and It's going to be great. And no. Esau gets out of sight. He's going south maybe southeast a little, and Jacob heads northwest. He's going in the other direction. And thus he begins once again a pattern, trust and failure, trust and failure. And he's going to repeat this. And this one is going to come with some severe and heavy-duty consequences in his life, some incredible sorrow that reaches generations in the future. This direct obedience, disobedience will come with severe consequences. As we ended last week, we asked the question, will we be satisfied with what the Lord has promised and given to us? Because this was the issue. He wasn't going to be satisfied because what did he do? He moved close to the major cities and he built himself a home the very things that God told him not to do, that he would be a sojourner in, in the land, living in tents, trusting the Lord for his provision. And yet he's like, ah, I gotta go find me a nice green pasture right next to the city and set up camp. And that's what he does. Are we gonna be satisfied with what the Lord has offered to us? Are we gonna cling to that and find confidence and peace in it? Or are we afraid of our past and afraid of letting go of control for the future. If we fail to be satisfied, fail to trust, if we live in fear, we will likely experience the same heartaches or similar heartaches as what Jacob is about to experience with his family. And this is where we pick up in chapter 34, if you'll read with me. Starting verse 1, it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this young girl for a wife. Now, there's some real contrasts in here that I don't really understand. So he kidnaps the woman he loves, has sex with her by force with the woman he said he loves. There's some real inconsistencies here. But really, do we remember what Jacob's family is like? Jacob has often played the favorites with Leah, with Rachel. We've seen it now with all of his children. Um, from the very beginning of his family relationships there with Laban, there was envy, bitterness, strife, competition, it was just a total gross, messed up, dysfunctional family. But Jacob modeled for his family a corrupted view, first of all, authority, a corrupted view of submission, 
and this leads to that same corruption in his children. Dinah goes to visit the neighbors. However, the cultural norms would dictate that she would be chaperoned, that she would have someone there to protect her. Now, we have no idea how it is that she wanders out near the city or in the city alone by herself as a young unmarried woman. Did she ask, hey, mom, dad, can I go check out the city? And they said, no, that's the dumbest idea ever. And she did it anyways. Or she asked, and maybe they're distracted and not concerned, not thinking clearly or just not concerned at all for her well-being. And they're like, sure, just be careful. And she'll, off she goes, right? These, we have no clue why she's there, but the fact that she's there does not speak well of her parents. It's safe to say that her trip to visit the neighbors was unwise at the very best. Because Jacob chose to live near an ungodly city with ungodly influences. And at the core, at the core of this, whatever, if, if there was even a tiniest shred of responsibility on Dinah's part, it is overshadowed by the responsibility of her father. He led the family here. He camped near the enemy. Because of his disobedience to God by failing to return to Bethel to be near his relatives, which is what God said back in chapter 31, he sets the stage for this tragedy. In Luke chapter 6, um, Jesus, he's traveling and he gives this great sermon. He's teaching the disciples and many of the, the multitude of people that are following along with him, some of them, some of the religious leaders trying to find a way to catch him. At the end of the chapter, Jesus gives this strong rebuke, and, and again, I think some of it's directed towards the religious leaders and those that are just following along because they want to see the miracles. They want the, they're there for the show or they're there for the food, right? They're there for the miracles that God can do for their lives, but they're, they're not following Jesus as the Christ, and he speaks this rebuke. He does, they don't believe the words that he speaks, and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid foundations on the rock, and when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has acted and not acted accordingly, he is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst again, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. What is about to happen to Jacob's house? God spoke to Jacob on four separate occasions, reminding him of his faithfulness to Jacob, the promises providing direction and wisdom through his commands. In chapter 32, in desperation, Jacob cries out to the Creator and calls him God and Lord. And yet, why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I say. Here we are again. Jacob's not responded in faith and in obedience, and he's endangered his family. This is what rebellion against God produces. It produces tragedy in our lives. How do I know? Because I've done it more than once. Sadly, this tragedy does not end with Dinah. Verse 5, now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. As I mentioned before, it's not only that Dinah was raped, but she was kidnapped. And this is evidence if you, uh, as you drop down into verse 26, we see that Dinah is there in Shechem's home in the city. Why does Jacob wait? What, what keeps him from responding with a father's righteous anger? What, what, or more importantly, what keeps Jacob from crying out to the Lord for wisdom and help? Jump down to verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And my men, being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. Why doesn't he respond? Also notice this, not once in the entire book is the name of God mentioned. It's conspicuous evidence of a lack of faith and trust. Jacob does not send for his sons or act to retrieve his daughter or seek the Lord because of one thing, fear, fear of what men will do. And this has been a pattern in his life. Rebellion leads to fear, and fear is rarely, if ever, a good motivator or foundation for good decision-making. I also want to talk, take a moment to talk about Jacob's response considering his role and our role as parents. How serious does God take our role as parents or as adults in the lives of children? Well, Matthew chapter 18, verses 4 through 6, gives us, I think, a very clear picture of his passionate love for children and for their protection and our responsibility. In verse 4, he says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name, in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. A heavy millstone hung around your neck and dropped in the deepest part of sea, that is better than what is going to happen. That 
that should cause godly fear to arise in us. I say godly fear, a sense of awe of God's authority, his majesty, his power, his omniscience, that he knows everything, his omnipresence that he sees he is ever-present. His word says that not even one sparrow falls. So how much do you think he loves a child? It's in this when we reject the truths and dis disobey the Lord, our ability to lead others, especially children, is greatly diminished. This is because children often see through our hypocrisy, don't they? A wise teacher once said, more is caught than taught. Kids will see, do our words, or do our actions line up with our words? I love this. Um, there's, there's a YouTube channel. I think it's called Cotton Providence. Um, I think it's Providence, Rhode Island. But it's before this judge, older judge. And, and he, he allows children to speak up or sometimes if there are children present with the person. And a lot of times he's dealing with traffic tickets and things like that. But he'll often ask the children, you know, did, did your mom or dad do that? And the kids will just... Throw the parents under the bus. They know what's right and wrong. If we continue in our rebellion, the love, care, and concern for others' well-being, children's well-being is greatly diminished. I, again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm ashamed to say that because of my own rebellion at times that I failed to lead my children toward the Lord. Rather, I have led them away from. And God does hold us accountable for these things. This Matthew passage stands as a stark warning for you and I. The Lord is watching. He cares and he warns us of the dire consequences of causing his little ones to stumble. And this is the message that that Jacob should have taken to heart. All those times that God is reminding, listen, I'm with you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. A great host of people will come out. I'm going to bless you six ways from Sunday. You won't be able to contain the blessings. I'm watching over you. But sadly, throughout his life, Jacob would continue to reap what he sowed. He his actions would lead to greater divisions in his family, even greater sorrows because of the discipline of the Lord. And because of his failure to obey God's direction, Jacob now finds himself fearing godless people. He is fearing godless people more than he fears the Lord. But fear him who is able to cast your soul even into hell, right? I mean, forget about these other people. They, they can't do anything to you. There is, no, there is nothing in this planet that can harm me as a believer when it comes to eternity. Oh, they might kill the body. But God says he's preserved the best part for eternity. This is what Jacob needs to take to heart as he shepherds his children 
But what a horrible message is sent to Dinah. And this was probably the harder one for me to reconcile, as I think. This, this is one of those stories, just like there is no reconciling the story for Dinah. Not to mention her mom, the other wives, the other children. As parents and as adults in his church, may we never put our children in danger by compromising the truth and the commands of God. Verse 8, but Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you to live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according to you as you say, but give me the girl in marriage. Now, as I mentioned, there are some inconsistencies here. The request of Hamar and Shechem is it's not based. It's not based in love or truth. And again, this is evidenced by verse 23. Their primary motivation really is the possession of this girl and eventually the possession of all the people and the wealth of Jacob to assimilate them into their own culture. And again, if only Jacob had maintained a close and growing vibrant relationship to the Lord, he would have seen through the deception. In fact, he probably would not be here. He would not be in these circumstances. His deception and failures with Esau and then with Leah and Rachel, they begin to now bleed into his sons. Verse 13, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And I would add, because they had seen their father deceive others. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you, if you will become like us in that every male of you is to be circumcised. Then we will give, you, give our daughter to you, daughters to you, and we will take daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, this gets more, when you think about it from a biblical perspective, it gets more grotesque because circumcision was to be a sign, an outward sign of a relationship with the Lord and the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was the sign that they belonged to God, that they were in relationship with him. And no mere outward act in their flesh was ever going to change the wicked heart of Hamar and Shechem and the people of the city. I, I think one commentator said it really well, is they prostituted circumcision. They use it as a tool and a weapon. The Apostle Paul, God spoke through him in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. This was not what was being presented. It was a pure act of deception and an affront to the covenant with God. You see, you and I will never be transformed by our mere actions. As we heard this last Sunday, our, our, our flesh, our earthly person will never be reconciled apart from Christ, apart from a relationship with him. Salvation is by faith. It is a matter of the heart. The outward signs of faith are a symptom of a changed heart. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Jacob's failure to lead in a godly way and do something only serves to provoke his sons. As one pastor said, when God appointed heads, when God appointed heads do not take appropriate leadership, it creates a void which is often filled sinfully. And this is a warning to us as men, as fathers, as grandfathers, even as single men, setting an example for the younger generation. God has called us to be godly men, to lead in a way that reflects his character and nature. When we fail to do that, what happens is often filled, as, he's, as, as I mentioned, filled by sinful things, counterfeits. We're called to lead families, to be close to the Lord that we might hear his voice and follow his leading. And this is to be a protection not only for our own lives, but those entrusted to our care. We could certainly say that this same idea falls to every believer, man and woman and child. Sadly, the sons of Jacob take the lead from their father, what they've seen, what he's demonstrated, and use the good thing of God as a tool of destruction they knew what circumcision meant. Surely they had heard the story of their grandfather and their father and the prohibition of marrying into these wicked nations. So they knew they, there was no way they were going to marry into. Dad was not going to sign off on that. But they carried the lie, the example of their father, and they sowed deception. Verse 18, now their words seemed reasonable to Hamar, and Shechem, Hamor's son, the young man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us is to be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property among, among all their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. 
all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamer and to his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. <coughs> now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and, w- and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and they captured and looted all their wealth <coughs> and all their little ones and their wives, even all that was in the houses. It is... A mess. Now, it's not unreasonable to expect or to think that Shechem must pay for his sin. He alludes to it earlier when he says, listen, I'm willing to pay whatever bride price. There's a cultural expectation that, man, you did the deed. You're going to pay for this because this was a protection for the women. Because now, as, as, as a woman who is not a virgin, the likelihood of her getting married is much slimmer. And so to require, at the very least, the offender to give the bride price, that she might have something to live on for the rest of her life, to support her, to care for her. So it's not unreasonable to expect there to be some serious consequence But to make an entire city suffer for the sin of one man is not consistent with the character of the Lord. Now, in our society today, we might look at this and we might say, they're they're just getting what they deserve. The whole idea of uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But you see, Jesus came full of what in in the book of John? Grace and truth, an equal measure. And he did it to set humanity free. What the sons of Jacob do has nothing to do with grace and truth. They wanted revenge. And Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These two young men, these brothers, listen, I think we could all sympathize. It's like, man, I would want to end somebody's life for certain. But to kill an entire city and take captive the children and women? You see, they had forgotten that God is the sovereign God, just like their father had forgotten. Monkey see, monkey do. They were just following the pattern set before them. You see, because it would be generations later that the wrath of God would be poured out upon the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Parasites. You see, God had already accounted for them.
And God, if he's demonstrated nothing to Jacob and his family, it's his heart of grace, compassion, and faithfulness. Does this mean there should be no consequence for sin? No. (laughs) There is a consequence for sin. There are sins that, listen, God and others may forgive us, but we are going to pay the penalty for that. However, we have the option of extending grace just as we ourselves have received grace. Amen? We have that option. And in fact, we, ought to, we should be considering it as a first option. Simeon and Levi not only lied, they failed to consult the Lord when taking the matters into their own hands. Again, what was their example? And again, the consequences of their actions would reach down to their descendants. If you were to roll forward all the way to Genesis chapter 49, verses 5 through 7, this is now what Jacob or Israel in his old age now. He holds these young men accountable, and he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. They let, let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Judah and scatter them in Israel." What happens to them? Well, when Israel enters the land and begins to settle, by the time they get there, there's almost nothing left of Simeon. And so just as Jacob prophesied, they're assimilated into the tribe of Judah. And Levi, did they get an inheritance in the land? Nope. Oh, they were, by God's grace and mercy, they were given a great responsibility, but they had no inheritance, no land. They owned nothing. They were the priests. So it was both a curse and a blessing. God's mercy and grace, but also his truth. Ephesians 4, 25 through 27 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one with you with his neighbor, for we were members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. There is such thing as godly, righteous anger. But the difference between the two is, even as it says here in Genesis 49, the difference between the two is self-will. I'm going to do this thing because they deserve it. It does not account for the grace and mercy that we received from God, the faithfulness that we received from God. It's a desire for justice that does not include the counsel of the Lord. The sin of Simeon and Levi was self-willed anger, and it fueled their revenge. When, when you and I are wronged, or when, or when someone we are responsible for is wronged, how do we respond? How ought to how we ought to respond. Is seeking the counsel and wisdom of God our first response? I mean, listen, there's times I have completely lost my mind. There was a time when we lived in a house in Gresham, a young boy was across the street, um, talked to our kids, well, I would say talked to our kids. They agreed to disobey their parents 
And uh, part of that included Colleen when she was little. Sorry, sis, you're going to hear this story. And nonetheless, when we found out about it, um, we were pretty angry. And then the next week, I was, our kids were on the back deck, and this young man was throwing big rocks over the fence and hitting our house and down on the deck. The kids are back there playing, big rocks. I came running around the side of the house, completely lost my mind, screaming his name, and I am going to kill him. Because all I'm thinking about, what danger have you placed my children in? We need to be careful that our anger is first submitted to God. Amen? Submitted to God that he might temper it, that it might be expressed in a manner that provokes someone to see God in us, even in that anger. Do we act in a manner consistent with the one who purchased us from certain and deserved death? It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's some crazy, amazing grace, isn't it? Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon Levi, we've read this before, you've brought trouble on me by making me odious, a smell, a bad smell among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. I always thought it just on a funny note, the Perizzites sounds like parasites, but that's another story. Yeah. And my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and when I will be destroyed, I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? And as this bit of history ends, Jacob once again fails to communicate to his children the heart of God, a concern, a care for them. No mentions made of Dinah's horrible injury and offense. No mention is made of what, oh, this is what the Lord wanted. Jacob's only response is, I'm afraid. And now we have to do something about it. And it's not going to be good. And these crushing words would only serve to further harden the hearts of his sons and cause them to despise their father all the more. And we'll see this in the, in the chapters coming up with Joseph. It gets worse. You see, this chapter is another one which teaches us lessons through negative commands. Do not disobey the Lord. Do not lie. Do not run from the Lord. Do not be fearful. Do not trust in your own wisdom. Do not cause others to stumble. Do not fail to seek the Lord. Do not fail to lead. I'll give you two verses that the really from them, the messages that Jacob needed to consider and to teach to his family. And the same message that we need in our lives today, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in who? The Lord. With what? All your heart. And do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then James chapter 1, it's a, a verse that I've been memorizing for a while with Dave Brown, a young man I get to spend time with. <clears throat> it says, this you know, my beloved brothers, 
But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. (coughs) As we consider the kindness and faithfulness of God, May we daily practice seeking him for wisdom and understanding, acknowledging him in everything. May we fear or or be in awe of him, of the Lord, that we might be kept from evil, that we would see evil (coughs) for what it is, and allowing his presence in us to constrain our speech, restrain our anger, and keep us humble. Because if we will do this, we will be an example of Christ as we lead our families, as we interact with our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, and any other that God puts in our path, and it would be to the praise of the Father by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of Genesis. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.